let us now turn our attention to God's word as we hear what he has to say to us. Our passage this morning is from Daniel chapter 6, and the sermon is entitled, The Nations Don't Quit. Now it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Now when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. 
I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we're continuing our study in the book of Daniel this morning. It's a study where we've been asking the question, what does it look like to live out our faith among people who don't necessarily share our faith, who may even be antagonistic to our faith? Today, we come to chapter six in the book. It's the account of Daniel being targeted for his faith, refusing to compromise his faith, then thrown into a den of lions, and afterwards supernaturally rescued. Which sounds awfully similar to chapter 3, if you think about it, where Daniel's friends were singled out for their faith because they refused to compromise their faith and then thrown into a furnace where they were supernaturally rescued. Two very similar stories, which makes you wonder why. Why give us this one? Why, out of all the things that you and I would love to know about how do we actually live out our faith on this earth, why take time and space to record a story in chapter 6 that is so similar to one just a few chapters earlier? And that's where it's helpful to ask, what are the differences between the two? When you ask that question, you realize two things leap out at you immediately. First, there's an age difference. And secondly, there's an empire difference. Now, the author of the book has been giving us a lot of historical markers as he's written it down. So we know that Daniel in chapter 6 is somewhere in his 80s at this point. He's no longer a young man, just starting out like his friends were in chapter 3. But he's still going strong. He's taking on new challenges as he serves the Persian government. He's now yet one more time in line for another promotion. But despite, despite being personally established, his faith continues to put him at odds with his society. And that's true even though there's a new empire in charge. We saw last week that the Persians took over Babylon by conquering King Belshazzar, who rejected God. But the regime change, which is ironically predicted by this man of faith, has not changed the antagonism of the world to Daniel's faith. What the regime change has done is simply change who it is that's antagonistic. The faces are different, but the hatred is exactly the same. Daniel's older, his society has changed, but the animosity toward his faith has not. And that reality challenges two of our very cherished American ideas. The idea is that first, the older you get, the nearer you are to retirement, the easier life gets, or the easier life should get. And we import some of that idea into how we live out our faith. We expect it then to get easier the longer that we live on this earth. This chapter comes along, challenges that idea, and says, no, you can expect it to be hard all the way to the end. Secondly, this chapter challenges the idea that you can make evil go away by changing your environment that new life circumstances will give you relief from old problems. What you learn in chapter six is that the spiritual life in this world is not like what we Americans expect. It is not easier as you get older. Changing your environment, whether that's your government, your job, where you live, the people around you, that's not gonna necessarily make living your faith easier either. In fact, as in Daniel's case, it might make it harder to live out your faith because 
you'll become an even greater target than you were before. Chapter 6 teaches you that the struggle to live faithfully does not happen just once in your lifetime at some point and then it's done, smooth sailing after that. You might be tempted to believe that if all you had was chapter 3, but chapter 6 helps you realize that living faithfully is a constant, unrelenting battle. It comes with very th real costs throughout your entire life. And yet, it's a battle that does not have to crush you. It doesn't crush Daniel. He learns about this new assault on his faith, and he does immediately what? What he had been doing. He keeps talking to God, doing his job. And there's something refreshingly just matter-of-fact about his response. The lack of drama is very freeing. He just takes it in stride. And you and I can too. We can enter into this lifelong battle with confidence, without being demoralized, without compromise. But to do that, we're going to need several things that this passage teaches us. Three things we'll look at today. First, we need to understand why it's lifelong. Why is this battle unrelenting? Why doesn't it let up? Secondly, we need to see what a life of true faith looks like as it engages an antagonistic world. What is it that marks the life of faith as it continues to express itself in this world? And then third, we need to know what is it that lets us live this life? Where does the power come from in order to live faithfully in this world? To serve it well, knowing that at some point you're going to get smacked. You know that, and yet you enter into it with confidence anyway. Confidence to honor God and to love the people who are all around you. Three things we need to know in order to enter into this lifelong battle. We need to understand why the battle is lifelong, what faith actually looks like in this battle, and then what is it that empowers faith. First, why is this battle lifelong? Here, you need to enter into a biblical worldview and understand that there are two kingdoms that claim to be in charge over everything that happens on this earth. Darius references both of those kingdoms in the end of the chapter. In verse 25, by writing a decree to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Darius acknowledges he's the ruler of all people. In a very real sense, he's in charge of the world. But in verse 27, he goes on to say that God delivers and rescues, that he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, that God is involved here on this earth, and that what God does is rescue once others have decided to destroy. And so what Darius draws our attention to is that there are two rulers who claim jurisdiction over what happens on earth. There's an earthly ruler, and then there's this heavenly ruler. And the question then naturally arises, when there is a conflict between these two rulers, which one of them tells you what to do? Which one of them are you going to obey? Who's really in charge? When one of them tells you to do something that the other one says not to, who do you listen to? That question has to be answered because there is a, an overlap of their sovereignties. When humanity acknowledges, like Darius does at the end of the chapter, that God's kingdom takes precedence, then there is no problem. There's no conflict between these two kingdoms. The problem arises, however, when humanity rejects God's kingship. When humanity establishes itself as the ultimate authority over itself, and that's what you've been seeing as we've been walking through the book of Daniel. Very telling that as you read through the book, not once do you come across the name of a god. There's no mention of Bel, 
of Marduk or any of the other gods. Instead, what you see front and center are people, people personified through their kings, acting as though there was no one higher than they themselves, no one to whom they must answer. And so you see people reject God's vision for humanity that he reveals in chapter 2 by demanding to be worshipped in chapter 3. People claim in chapter 4 that it's their power alone that builds great things on this earth. Power that is so great, chapter 5, that they set themselves up to be more powerful than God. And when you get to today's chapter, chapter 6, you see that the vast majority of human beings think that it's reasonable to believe that a human being can and should replace God, that everyone should pray to this king and they should see him as the source, the only source of all the blessings and goodness that they experience in life. What you see in the book of Daniel are human beings rejecting God and putting themselves in his place, enshrining themselves as God. And what you see hinted at in Daniel's day 2,600 years ago, the deification of the human race, that hint becomes increasingly explicit as societies secularize. For instance, the Humanist Manifesto of 1933 is really clear when it says, quote, the time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. It's time to recognize that religious belief is changing. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Science and economic are now in in and above religion. In every field of human activity, the vital movement is now in the direction of a candid and explicit humanism. That's where real stuff is happening. And so the manifesto goes on to proclaim, in the place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. In other words, religion used to direct us to God in our personal and in our social lives, but we don't need God to do that anymore because we ourselves will do the work of God. We will, unaided, promote personal and social well-being. Manifesto has gone through several versions. The 1973 version makes that claim explicit when it declares, quote, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves, unquote. Now, the language might be new might be modern, but the reality is not. Thought patterns of beliefs are not. It's the same exact conflict spelled out in modern terms that you see in ancient terms. It's the conflict that you see underlying the book of Daniel. If you want to understand this world, you have to see that the true kingdoms in conflict are not human to human. They're secondary. True conflict is not Babylon versus Persia. The two con true conflict is humanity versus the God who made us. And that's why you can swap out one kingdom for another and yet find the same antagonism to God in both of them. You find the same desire in both to impose their authority over how God tells people to live. Their differences with each other are relatively small. There's a fundamental unity to them. And that is that human beings are working overtime to replace God with themselves. Humanity believes that we both have the power to save ourselves and that we are good enough to use that power to save ourselves. And scripture comes along and challenges that notion. It says, no, 
you don't. You have neither the power nor the goodness. And in fact, it's the misplaced belief that you do that creates these problems between people in the first place. Now that's a hard sell if you're a modern Western education educated person. It just doesn't feel right. It feels insulting. It feels insulting to you personally. It feels insulting to the people around you, people that you actually like. And so you instinctively give people credit for being good and powerful. Here's a thought experiment. When you see your neighbors, your coworkers, fellow student in class, when you see other people doing the same kinds of things that you're doing, how often does it occur to you to think, oh man, my heart really goes out to them because they need a savior. Inside of them lurks a hatred of God that acts like a corrosive chemical and that chemical is going to damage everything they touch and it'll poison every relationship that they have unless it's removed, unless they're saved. How often do you think like that? You talk to somebody in the supermarket, you hang out with people at your child's uh, sporting event, you connect with some of your neighbors in the street, and, and, and how often does it occur to you to think, man, they've gotta be saved? Or do you tend to think, they're pretty decent people. Yeah, sure, they need some help in different areas, but I like them. They're fun to be around, they're fun to do stuff with, they're good people. Do you hear the worldviews colliding here? One says people must be saved from themselves versus the other one says people are pretty basically decent, they're good. How is it that there are such radically different ways to think about the same human beings? It's because there are two truths about people that are really important. And you have to remember both of these truths simultaneously all the time. One, people are made in the image of God. They have a certain glory that's built into them. And so you should be drawn to people. You should love them. You should like them. You should learn from them. You should enjoy being with them. You should want to hang out together and, and be with other people. That's legitimate because of what God has built into them. That's all true. And there's a second truth. And that is that the image of God is broken in every human being, you and me included. We are born into this world with a fundamental bentness that arcs away from good toward evil. Our world embraces one of these realities, how amazing human beings are, but it ignores the other, how damaged and broken we are. And so it sees people as having the ability and the power to save themselves from their own brokenness. Now, if you are wrestling with seeing both parts of our identity, that we are both glorious and damaged beyond our ability to repair ourselves, if you're having trouble seeing those two things equally at the same time, frankly, I don't know how you can't wrestle with that idea if you've been influenced by the thought patterns of the West. But if you're wrestling, struggling with that idea, let's try a different thought exercise. There are times where it's helpful to stand back and look at history and see that no, there is no evidence anywhere, not even in the best civilizations, to believe that people are basically decent human beings. Sometimes that approach is helpful. Other times it's more helpful to see what is true of you as an individual. To take someone that you know pretty well and ask, what is most true of me? Am I basically a decent human being? Or is there some unexplainable bentness in me that I can't seem to grow out of? 
that I can't make go away, that keeps urging me to do things that I wish I didn't? Pretty worthwhile question, right? Seems like it's a question you'd want to know the answer to. So how do you know that? How, how do you go about answering that question? Let's pretend that suddenly, starting right now, you no longer can control what you said, that every thought that flashed through your mind came immediately out of your mouth, that literally as soon as you thought it, you said it. You didn't spend any time thinking about it, you didn't filter it, you didn't modify it, it just came right out. What impact do you think that you would have on the people around you? Ask it a different way. Would you have any friends by the end of the day? I don't think I would. Would you make any new ones? Probably not if they heard right now what's going on inside of your head. So what does that say about you? It says that you currently have the ability to control what is inside of you, which you should not take for granted. Some people lose that control. But what does it say about you? It says that there is something inside of you that needs to be controlled. Something that is not basically good. Something that if it got out, it would hurt and damage other people. And you know plenty of times in your own life when it has gotten out, when you've not been able to control it. The church planner, Jack Miller, used to talk to people who struggled to see their need to be saved from themselves. And so he proposed that they do what he called the tongue assignment. It's a series of five things that you are not to say and five things that you are to say for the space of a week, seven days. Things like, number one, do not gossip. Do not say anything negative about anyone. Do not mention your frustrations or your irritations about anyone for an entire week while you do speak well of everyone in your world. That's number one. Number two, do not complain about anything, but do give thanks in all things. Number three, do not make any excuses. Do not blame shift, but do own your mistakes and confess your sins. Number four, do not defend yourself, but do acknowledge when someone's critique is accurate. Number five, do not boast about anything in yourself, but do boast about your weakness and your need. Five things not to say, five things to say. Try doing that for seven days, and it will help you see how good you are not. How you cannot make yourself good, even if you try. Now, if you're like me, it's not going to take you seven days. It's not even going to take you one day. And you'll start to see that you have no hope of saving yourself. And you'll start to understand that what you need is to be saved from yourself. Now, if that's true of you and me, and it is, do you really think that other people are so different? And let's be honest, we just kept this in the realm of what people say. Can you imagine what would happen if you lost control over what you felt? If you acted on every feeling that you have in a day? Would not be pretty, at least not in my case. It's just not true that we are decent human beings. There is a glorious side to being human. There is something that should be cherished, it should be protected, it must be valued, but there is also a dark side, a side that wants to replace God and be our own God. And it's a dark side that if we let it go long enough, it will undermine and it will ruin all of the glory that we still have. It's because that is in each of us as individuals that it's in our societies. 
And because it's in our societies, there is an endless struggle. There's this endless striving against God who tells us that, no, he's in charge. And therefore, there's an endless struggle against God's people that makes our lives very hard on this earth every minute that we're alive. Jesus was very blunt. He told his disciples in John chapter 15, if you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You have to guard yourself against the ideas of our culture. Don't let yourself fall into thinking that the longer you live here, the more comfortable you'll be. It's actually the other way around. The longer you live a life of faith here, the more opportunity there will be for the world to hate you. So first, the life of faith is a lifelong battle on this earth. Second, what does that life of faith look like? What does a life of faith look like as it engages an antagonistic world? What comes out of a lifetime of faithfully obeying God when you're surrounded by people who are trying to replace him with themselves? The first thing that chapter six draws your attention to is how good a citizen Daniel is of the country in this, that he's part of. He's committed to his country. That was true of how Nebuchadnezzar saw him in the Babylonian empire. It's how Darius sees him in the Persian empire. Verse three, this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. There wasn't anyone else like him when it came to his profession, his occupation, his, his statecraft. He was excellent. Wasn't anyone else like him in his profession? Wasn't anyone else like him in how he carried out his profession? Verse four, the high officials and the satraps could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Daniel served his country with excellence and with integrity. His faith did not pull him away from the Persian nation. What did his faith do? It urged him, it moved him forward to give the best that he had. And he was known for that. Well known, the king knew it, all the officials knew it. But Daniel's known more for than just being faithful to his country. He's known for his faithfulness to God. No secret to anyone that he serves God and that he honors what God says above what any human government says. That's why the officials, as they're plotting against him, say to each other in verse five, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They understood that Daniel saw himself living simultaneously in two kingdoms, kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of God, and they knew that when there was a conflict, he would take God every time. They also knew where to find him to see that he was picking God over Persia. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. As he had done previously, there was a common practice he had in pursuing God. It was a practice that was known. The officials in verse 11 go to spy on him. They see him praying to God, not to the king. And they went there because they expected him to be doing that. His faith was not something that he hid or tucked away in private. 
You see Daniel living out the two great commands, to love God above everything else and to love his neighbor as himself. But he does so. He lives out his faith in full view of the public. His faith moved him to do his job with excellence and integrity, and it moved him to honor God over the king, even though he knew that it was going to put him in physical danger. He was willing anyway to disobey the king's law because what he longed for was to obey the Lord. Now, just as an aside, very quickly, 90 seconds, and we're just going to touch this very lightly. Daniel is telling us that there's a place in the life of faith when it's legitimate and appropriate to disobey a government order. Some people would call this civil disobedience. It's probably going too far in this chapter because Daniel's not trying to give us a full theology here of civil disobedience. What he is doing is showing us there's a place and a time when you choose not to obey your government. I'm saying that very lightly, and here's there's some parameters here that we have to work within if we think it's appropriate to do that. You have to realize first, this is a very unique activity. It's reserved for times when the government oversteps itself and tells you to do something that would disobey God, that would put its authority over God's authority. There's other times scripture talks about this. That's what Peter and the other apostles recognize when they were told not to tell other people about Jesus's death and resurrection anymore. And they respond in Acts chapter five by saying, we must obey God rather than men. There are times when a government will try to put itself between you and God. And in those moments, you have to choose to disobey the human authority in order to obey a higher authority. But even then, you're still bound by the rest of God's commands. If you're going to argue, we must obey God rather than men, then you must obey God in the way that you treat the men whom you're disobeying. God's other commands are still in force, like not lying to them or stealing from them, not coveting, not murdering the ones that you're disobeying. Commands that would keep you from damaging or harming other human beings. Or more simply said, as Paul puts in Romans 13, you do no harm to your neighbor, which was Daniel's intention as well. He tells the king that God rescued him from the lions, verse 22, because I was found blameless before him, before God, and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. You hear his goal there. It's not anarchy. He's not trying to usurp the government's authority. Didn't try to turn anyone else against the king. He decided what? To keep loving God. And so he did simply what he had already been doing. And he's willing to accept the consequences of his government for those actions. In other words, he recognized, as we've seen in the book earlier, that it is God who gives governments their authority. Daniel accepts the consequences of his actions, continues to recognize Darius's God-given authority over him. He was blameless before God, and he did no harm to his society. It's a really hard combination to pull off. But what is that? It's loving God and loving neighbor. It's the combination that shows your faith is genuine that you honor God above all others, and that you work hard to honor human beings as well. You work excellently with integrity while your faith is openly on display to such an extent that other people know about it, even if they're going to use it against you. Now notice, there's nothing here that is religiously special about Daniel. 
He's not a religious professional. He comes from the nobility, not the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. His specialty is in government and in governing, not in religion. And that ought to encourage you because most people are not religious professionals. Most of the Israelites did not come from the tribe of Levi. God did not intend them to. But God did intend that all of them would live out their faith in whatever sphere of life they were in. And he intended that their faith would influence what they did in that sphere. So they would do it with excellence and with integrity. And so that it was known why they were doing it with excellence and integrity. And that's the same thing that God intends for you. That your faith would not be something that just gets stuck onto your life on a Sunday, but that it informs you as you go about your profession, that it informs your studies in school, that it informs how you conduct yourself in your career, how you go about making a home for the people that you love. Your faith is not supposed to be something that you do for show. When Daniel hears of this new edict, he doesn't go off and do something new. He does what he's already been doing. Your faith is supposed to be that integral and that important a part of how you live even when people don't like you. That they will see it, that they'll know it because it's obvious. So point one, expect the life of faith to be this lifelong battle on the earth while point two, you pour yourself out for the good of this world even when it doesn't like you which raises point three, the question, how do you do this? and not wear out? How do you do this and not be discouraged or start to pull away from people or look like you hate living this way? Where's the power come from? Not only to live a godly life, but to have a godly attitude while you're living that life. A life like that can only come from having God's presence with you. And that's what you need regardless of what you face in life. Let's think about it this way. The biggest danger for Daniel is not that he's facing lions. What do the lions mean for Daniel? They mean that he's taken from his home, he loses his property. They mean that he's taken from his family and friends, so he loses his relationships. They mean that he's no longer able to do what he wants to do, and he's about to lose his life. Those are serious losses. But if you think about it, you and I face every single one of those losses as well. Every single one of us is going to die at some point. And when we do, we will all lose every bit of property that we've ever owned. Frankly, a lot of what we have now is gonna wear out. Before we die, we're gonna lose it anyway, but one day we will lose everything that we've ever owned. And one day, we're gonna lose every one of our friendships. Either we're gonna die our friends and family will die, they'll move away. Somehow, we're gonna lose every one of our friends. And every single one of us will come to the point where our body is no longer under our control. And that loss does not wait until death to come. Even if you've managed to avoid some kind of disease, your body will develop all kinds of aches and pains long before you're ready to think of yourself as old. We're all gonna lose the ability to do what we want to do. And unless the Lord returns, every single one of us will die. Everyone who's hearing what I'm saying right now will not be here 200 years ago from now. Most of us, nearly all of us won't be here 100 years from now. Most of us won't be here 50 years from now. 
Facing the lions is not Daniel's biggest danger because the lions are doing what? They're simply moving up the date that was already waiting for him, the date when he would lose everything. The biggest danger in life is not facing the lions. It's facing the lions alone. Facing death and loss alone. Whether that death and loss comes from an antagonistic world or it comes by natural causes. The biggest danger in face is facing it with no other resources than what you bring to the table, all of which will be wiped out in an instant when you die. The biggest danger in life is being alone with the lions. And Daniel wasn't. When the king asks, verse 20, if God was able to deliver him from the lions, Daniel answers, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. The identity of this angel is not spelled out. It's clear, however, that this is God's presence with Daniel as he faces the lions. He is not alone. That's what he needed to live a life of faith in an antagonistic world, the presence of God. And that's the difference between what Daniel and Jesus experienced as they both faced death. There are so many parallels between this account and what Jesus faced. Both men have enemies working behind their backs to destroy them. Both men are arrested during prayer at a private location. The top rulers involved work to release both men in both cases. They don't want to send them to death, but both rulers are unsuccessful. Both Daniel and Jesus are lowered into a place of death from which no one expects them to reemerge. Both places of death are covered with a stone and then sealed. In each case, someone goes to the tomb very early at dawn, and in both cases, there is a return from the domain of death. Daniel foreshadows Christ in his death and resurrection. He does so so strongly with so many common details, it's impossible to miss that this is foreshadowing. So many similarities except for one. Daniel experiences the presence of God as he faces death, and Jesus does not. Jesus dies on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies facing the lions alone. And he does that for a reason. It's because even though he was blameless before God and had done no one any harm, he died carrying our blame died for all the harm that we have done because of this thing inside that we cannot stop. He died for our sins, but he did more than simply pay for our sins. It's in his resurrection that he unites us to himself so that we share his blamelessness with him. So that what? So that he can then put his spirit inside of us. His spirit who will never leave us once he makes his home with us. That's why Jesus died alone. That's why he was willing to die alone. That's why he wanted to die alone. It's so that you would never be alone, that you would never be on your own. Not even when this world tries to make you pay for being loyal to God. Jesus promised that he would never leave you or forsake you. And that's the testimony of God's people now that comes down to us through the ages. Paul, the apostle, writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, about a trial that he went through. He said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, whether that's a metaphorical lion or a real one, it's hard not to hear him echo the words of Daniel 6 that he did not face his lions alone, that he knew the Lord was with him, strengthening him. And that's the same thing that you and I can expect. That when the lifelong battle of faith costs us, that we will not face that cost alone. That we'll face it with Christ, this one who's come back from the dead. That we will certainly have his presence with us if we're persecuted, that he will deliver us from death. That we will rise from the dead because of his blamelessness that he shares with us. It's his presence with us that lets us live faithful in this world, first to God, and second, faithful to loving the people of this world, even when they don't reciprocate. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with your people right now. Lord, that you have promised to never leave us alone, that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. Lord, I ask that we would experience the power of your resurrection, that we would experience the presence of your spirit in us that gives us confidence, Lord, that we can live out our faith boldly in this world, that we can be known for our faith. And Lord, that that will be a signal to others of what they could also have with you. Lord, thank you that age, changing circumstances of this world, that changes nothing about your presence with us. Lord, let us experience that today as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.